Hey, what's up? My name is Bo Brown, and I am about to start a podcast for the very first time. Just a little bit about myself first. Um, I am a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Urbana, Ohio, which is a little bit north of Dayton, Ohio, and west of Columbus, Ohio. I'm a husband of one, thank God, and a father of twins, twins A and B. Um, those obviously aren't their real names, but uh, just to to protect their uh, innocence for a little while, I'm going to refer to them as A and B and uh, let you guess which one is which. Anyway, uh, I am just kind of living life here. Um, the twins, by the way, are three years old, going to be four on May 30th, and um, I have a lot of interests in my life and um, sort, of, sort of need a platform to, to share those interests on. And um, among those interests are, uh, number one, hip-hop, hip-hop music, hip-hop culture. Um, loved it since I was, I don't know, five years old, and I'll be 35 this year, so... Um, long time of just really digging this music and um, the culture from which it emerged and it's really led me into um, hip-hop scholarship and just a general interest in um, ethnomusicology and things like that. Uh, second among my interests uh, are th- is theology. Um, I'm a pastor, so I really am interested in um, both classic theology that you know goes back even before the time of Jesus to really current theology, um, liberation theology uh, is kind of the vogue for the last I don't know twenty years as I understand it. Uh, process theology I've really been digging into that recently, uh, so I'm really uh, I really love to study. I would love to go on someday and do some graduate studies in uh, in theology, um, just to get a, a deeper grounding in some of the uh, contours of um, theology that comes from all around the world. And finally, there's just the miscellaneous category of the podcast. I might be talking about mental health issues, uh, might be talking about basketball, might be talking about technology. Uh, it's really up for grabs in this category. And so each week I'll have something else new to talk about. Might even dip into a little politics here and there. Uh, although I know sometimes I can split the audience a little bit, but hey, we all got our opinions, so might as well talk about them. So anyway, with that said, here goes the first episode of Lukewarm Takes. So when you hear the term hip-hop, a variety of images might come into your mind. You might think of 80s hip-hop like Run DMC and Curtis Blow, people like that if you're a little bit older like I am or even older than me. Or you might be a 90s kid, and so people like Tribe Called Quest come to mind, De La Soul, uh, maybe even some of the uh, gangster rap that started in, in the uh, really late 80s but really flourished in the early part of the 90s. Or maybe you're a little bit younger and you think of uh, you know early 2000s type stuff. Um, I don't know, Dipset, 
down south stuff when the when the southern artists really started coming into their own you remember little john and the east side boys you gang twins people like that or you might be young right now you might be listening to what's hot right now and um even though i've kind of gone away uh from some of the stuff that's on the radio today um i still have respect for it um some people call it mumble rap some of it and um even though i don't really uh vibe with it so to speak i uh, i can appreciate it and um far be it for me to be the old white guy talking about how these kids today don't know real hip-hop uh but anyway uh where i'm coming from is probably that mid to late 90s um what's sometimes called the golden age of hip-hop and so a lot of stuff that i'm going to be talking about in this hip-hop segment of the show of the podcast i should say is uh to do with that flavor of music and that culture um all of the activity that was happening primarily in new york city but spanning out from there um even over into detroit and um in other areas but primarily east coast uh music and uh it at that time in in hip-hop um you really started to see a flourishing of uh i guess what i would call socially conscious music um it was just music that the artists wanted to make i'm sure and in what they wanted to write about but there seemed to be a real uh understanding and a real um ability to communicate the realities out of which this this music was being uh produced and written and so uh you had conversation about uh drugs and violence um and some other uh difficulties of of people who are living in poverty um and it's not all negative because you had you had the the good times uh, that were talked about the celebrations that occurred in people's lives so uh one of the things i love most about hip hop especially from that era is that it's it's really hard to pigeonhole any one artist as uh that's party music or that's political music um it seemed like it was all just music and i guess when some of the record executives and some of the the big radio stations got involved uh they needed to further categorize this music and so they did start pigeonholing it um will will this play well in a dance club will people want to dance to this and so that becomes uh dance music and um will people want to play this in their car in the summertime so that becomes sort of like like car music or uh you know stuff so really you get typecast um sort of music coming out around that time uh, i guess probably primarily in the late 90s turn of the century uh that time frame is when this started happening but uh, the music i really really love is uh i think before that segmenting started to happen when when music was music and so even today when when i look for hip hop i'm i'm open to uh what you know maybe coming out these days um 
but I'm looking for a particular sound and I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, I'm looking for what is often termed uh, boom bap hip hop. That's that's the sound of the drums. The, the kick drum is the boom and the snare is the bap. Uh, really hard drums, uh, really sample heavy, a lot of uh, samples from soul and, and jazz music, uh, some R&B music. Um, that's, that's the sound I'm looking for. And the content uh, I'm looking for is, is socially conscious, is uh, people that can tell stories about the environments uh, in, in which they grew up. And, um, but, don't, but don't dwell on just trying to educate people, which, is, which I think is wonderful, but you know, can, can put meaningful content in, uh, in, in a way that's easy to, to digest. Um, so that's what I love about those artists like um, Pete Rock and Seal Smooth and, um, you know, even some of uh, what's termed gangster rap uh, really carried a, a strong um, message to people about what's going on. Uh, NWA uh, talked about police brutality, uh, maybe in not the, uh, the most... Um, polite way, but that that was their reality and that was their emotional reaction to what was going on in South Central LA at that time. Um, Which is another thing I I love about hip hop is that oftentimes it it doesn't censor itself. Um, It's it's raw. Um, It comes out as uh, sometimes very angry and um, it takes a certain dropping of your filters to, to listen to some hip hop. But in my experience, when I do that, when I drop my filters, when I drop my cringe, when I hear certain words, um, I, I can really, uh, I can really sense the meaning in the words. And I think I grow personally, um, when I can discover more of what other people are experiencing and what their life looks like. And um, I think it makes me more empathetic. Um, so there you go. So anyway, um, I'm not really going to talk about any particular uh, things going on in hip hop right now. But what I would say is if you have not heard um, the Brooklyn story, um, a Brooklyn story, it's an album by uh, an artist named Master Ace, who's been around for a long, long time. And it's produced by a producer named Marco Polo, a guy from uh, near Toronto, Canada, who migrated to, to Brooklyn, New York. Master Ace is from Brooklyn, uh, born and raised. Um, this, this album is sort of a concept album that, that explores Marco Polo's uh, transition from Toronto to New York and his experience of, of going there to make it in the music industry. Um, and we know the end of the story. He's uh, one of the more well-known producers in so-called underground hip hop. So he is, he is surviving off of producing music, uh, but it wasn't always that way. And so it's a really neat, dramatic uh, album that tells a story, which which I love, 
and the music is just incredible. The song um, Brooklyn is is really great. Um, there's also a song that um, where Master Ace um, he deals with his experience of multiple sclerosis, and Feral Manch is actually the disease. He's he's rapping as the disease and talking about how. Um, it's attacking his immune, uh, mastase's immune system, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, it's really creative and it's got some great guest spots from some great artists. And so I would definitely recommend checking out um, Master Ace and Marco Polo's album, A Brooklyn Story. And Brooklyn is spelled with the original Dutch spelling. Uh, B-R-E-U-K-E-L-E-N, I think it is. A Brooklyn story, Mast Ace and Marco Polo. Anyway, that's all for hip hop today. Um, I'll be back next week, maybe getting a little in-depth on some aspects of hip hop that I haven't discussed yet. So uh, thanks for listening. So now we move on to a little bit of theology for today. I thought we'd start off with maybe one of the most difficult questions that could ever be asked, not only in theology, but in life in general. And that is, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? It was this very question that got me interested in theology to begin with. Early on in my life, I experienced uh, some significant suffering. Now that I'm older, I realize it's, it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as bad as many other people, uh, perhaps you know, up to eighty percent of the world experiences. But nonetheless, it was real for me. Um, I experienced um, the divorce of my parents. I experienced um, difficulty making friends quite a bit of depression and anxiety that showed itself pretty early on, probably fifth or sixth grade. And just a general feeling of um, meaninglessness when it came to the world and life. And then I had this religious experience when I was probably 14, 15 years old. I was in a Pentecostal church. And um, as you know, Pentecostals really place a strong emphasis on uh, the gifts of the Spirit. And one of those gifts is being uh, what's called filled with the Holy Spirit, where there's a physical feeling of God's presence within your body. And I had that. I had, however I might describe it now, Uh, Then and there, it was an experience of God, God's grace, God's love. And so I had to come to terms with that mentally. I had to try to think about the experience um, from sort of a philosophical perspective. What was it that happened? And what does this experience I just had mean for the way I think about suffering, my own suffering, and the suffering in the world. And so that caused me to begin reading the Bible, looking for answers, um, begin exploring uh, some theology. 
at the time I was in high school, so uh, my le- my reading of of the the wide breadth of theology that the church has set forward was pretty narrow. Um, I didn't really know <laughs> how much theology actually existed at the time. It was it was pretty confined to the Pentecostal charismatic tra- tra- tradition. Um, but nonetheless, it, it really set my mind um, going, moving in the direction of, of a deeper understanding of how I could have experienced God's love, which was very real, and some of the suffering that I've experienced in my life and the suffering I've seen and witnessed and uh, maybe even caused at times, to be honest. So around midway through college, I uh, was really beginning to do some work with uh, schools in some really low-income neighborhoods in my community, um, working with middle school students who had been through more than I ever want my children to go through, um, domestic violence. Um, some of them had experienced their, their parents being, um, being arrested and incarcerated. Um, some of them had begun experimenting with drugs at a, you know, very early age, 12, 13 years old. Um, all kinds of things and things that were really foreign to my experience, but that um, I got to a little window into um, as I was caring for these young people through a program called Young Life in Evansville. Uh, so this must have been 19, 20 years old and story after story. I remember one one kid I was working with um, had actually been in a house fire and um, had sustained some very, very bad uh, burns on his skin that left uh, permanent scarring. Uh, He and his brother did. Um, And so I got to hear his story and his heartbreaking story. Um, And eventually I, I just sort of lost my faith in a good God. I started thinking, well, maybe that experience I had back then was just my own emotional sort of revving up and um, my sort of built-in wiring um, getting stoked a little bit and uh, and feeling this feeling of that felt like uh, the grace of God but really could be explained more physiologically and socially. And um, so I began questioning everything, which I think was, uh, which I think in hindsight was a really good thing. Uh, but again, this this question of why do bad things happen uh, really stopped me short, as I think it, it I think it should for us all. And so let me say I don't really think I have any answers, but. Uh, I might have some pathways forward, uh, at least that have helped me come to terms to still believe that God is good, to still believe that the universe at heart 
is um, is heading toward something good in the end. Um, Martin Luther King, I think it was, said uh, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so I still believe that, but um, it's taken a lot of thought and a lot of soul searching and a lot of conversations with people much smarter than I am to sort of come to terms um, with this and still believe that uh, God is good, God loves us, that um, there's a um, there's a meaning to life. So one of the uh, one of the things that that has really helped me in that is this discipline within theology called uh, process theology. Process theology is uh, a sort of theology that actually came out of a philosophy. Um, called process philosophy, um, it sort of really developed by a philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead. He was a mathematician as well, um, and so Alfred North Whitehead talked about reality in terms of process, as opposed to talking about reality in terms of um, substances. So that really dovetailed very nicely with um, the developments within uh, physics uh, called quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics, as I understand it, uh, essentially says that at the very root of everything, um, we don't have necessarily physical substances. Uh, We have sort of balls of energy and those energies are arranged in such a way that they form uh, what we see with our eyes, what we can touch with our hands. And so um, process theology uh, applied that to the way we think about God. God is a God of process. And so it helped us really think about um, particularly evolution. Um, Just spoiler alert, I uh, fully believe in in macroevolution. I believe that um, humans evolved from more primitive life forms and that God was very much part of that process. So process theology, um, to, to sum it up, I guess, as if that can actually happen, uh, describes a God who is working within the processes of the world to achieve the best possible outcome. A God who is within the world, um, not outside the world controlling it. God who is within the world, within the structures of the world, influencing, uh, luring creation toward uh, good and positive ends. Um, So when it comes to the problem of evil, um, process theology would say that thinking about God as omnipotent is not necessarily the right way to think about God. Uh, omnipotence is, um, uh, it means all powerful. And really that's not necessarily, if you look at the whole witness of the Bible, that's not necessarily the best way to look at God. Um, God can't, or God doesn't work like this. 
God doesn't stand outside the universe and point God's finger at at something and then uh, it does that. Um, it responds immediately to God's will and God sort of forces God's will on the planet. Uh, that's what Calvinism would say, um, very strict Calvinism. Um, but that's not really the overall biblical witness. The overall biblical witness is that um, God is within creation, um, working all things toward um, good purposes, but that God is not controlling those things. And so at the very heart of the universe, there is love, there is God. Um, but the way God works is, is not through control. It's through um, influence, sometimes very, very gentle influence. And so that doesn't solve all the problems, but I think it gets us a little bit closer to a biblical view of God. Um, and it gets us a little bit closer to being able to hold our faith um, up to the voice of reason and to really think through how God relates to this world and how that affects the way that uh, we view suffering. And so I've come to see suffering as simply a part of the reality of the world, um, that God is one actor among many, and even creation itself um, seems to have a mind of its own sometimes. The, the cells of our body uh, rebel sometimes and, and mutations form and cancer grows. Um, God is not making that happen. It's, it's simply part of the reality that exists. Um, that's sort of beyond the scope of the way God is working. Um, you know, (laughs) plate tectonics, plates, smash into each other and uh, tsunamis form and earthquakes form and uh, different winds um, from different parts of the world collide and um, I'm no meteorologist but uh, tornadoes form and, and hurricanes form and these are simply part of creation but God is is here and God is particularly present where there is suffering um, where there's brokenheartedness. And I think I see that in Jesus, especially that Jesus went to the people who knew suffering, who were like those kids that I worked with uh, back in college, uh, who almost knew nothing but suffering in their lives. And so I may be talking a little bit more about uh, process theology in the future. Um, I probably haven't done a very good job of giving a crash course in process thought. Um, But that's sort of the framework that I'm using to look at this world at this point. And uh, of course, I'm still reformed, um, but I want to relate that to a more process orientation, um, sort of along the lines of what uh, Jürgen Moltmann has done uh, fantastic German theologian. So that's all for theology today. Let's, uh, let's talk again next week. Peace.
All right, let's talk just for a moment about mental health. What is it? Um, how do you address it? Those types of questions. One of these days, I'd like to maybe share a little bit more about my own journey toward better mental health, dealing with depression and anxiety, uh, sometimes better than others. But today, I just want to talk for a moment about uh, what it means to have uh, mental illness and some things that we can do, I think, to address it. And the first thing I think I want to talk about is the stigma around mental illness. The second my generation or generations before my generation, so we're talking um, late millennials or early millennials and before, we have an association when we hear the words mental illness with all sorts of things. Um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest type situation and mental illness um, has this stigma that tends to marginalize people who struggle with mental health and so I think the first thing that we have to do when we're addressing mental illness is to get around that stigma or silence that stigma as my friends at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention talk about um, silence, silencing the stigma means sort of conditioning ourselves when we hear someone talk about mental illness to not have that sort of cringe factor, um, to not think, well, that person uh, has something deeply uh, inherently wrong with themselves, and so I have to steer clear of that person or else I'll get sort of tangled up in their web. And the reality is that a significant number, a significant percentage of our population uh, struggles with mental health concerns. And I wish I could quote that percentage and, and tell you the exact number, but um, it's an incredible amount. And as a pastor, I sort of have um, access to that part of people's lives if uh, they're willing to share that with me. And an incredible number of people are um, seeing counselors and uh, taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. Um, it's really been an eye-opener since I've become a pastor and since I've uh, sat and uh, done pastoral care with people, uh, just how prevalent mental illness is. And you probably believe, or you probably would not believe, um, some of the most seemingly well-adjusted people are people that are constantly addressing their own mental health. And so my theory that I've developed out of this, and I probably stole it from somebody else, is that the most mentally healthy people are indeed those who are actively addressing their mental health. Uh, concerns, whether it be through exercise, meditation, uh, seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist, um, checking themselves into a stress center or a behavioral health unit at a hospital and getting the help they need. Uh, my approach to mental health is that once we can silence the stigma around it, then we can get the help that we need. And so 
part of my journey with mental illness has been um, becoming more open about the struggles that I face. Um, not to say, look at me, not to say, uh, woe is me, but to say, hey, if, if you're facing these sorts of issues, I'm with you. And I might not know exactly what you're going through, but I can at least hear you. And then, and when you say you have depression or uh, dissociative identity disorder or anywhere along the spectrum of mental illness, um, you're not going to have a cringe from me. You're going to have a listening ear. And um, that's really been a healing for me. Um, I, I used to assume that I uh, would never make anything of my life or um, my mental illness was so debilitating that I just should never try anything um, because I could never follow through. I'd always be exhausted. I'd always be um, sad, deeply sad. And um, there's no cure, uh, I guess I should say, but there is improvement that can happen through a lot of experimentation, um, a lot of willingness to open up, to dig deep inside your own soul, uh, and to kind of lay bare some of the, the um, struggles you face uh, with a trustworthy person, with preferably a licensed person, with somebody uh, who can indeed help you and not just exacerbate um, what you're facing or what you're going through. So that's my two, three, four cents on mental health today. Uh, like I said, uh, maybe I'll get a little bit more in depth on my own journey, but that's not really what this is about. So um, I just want to say we need to si silence the stigma and we need to pursue those means of uh, improving our mental health, legal means, of course, um, and not be ashamed about it uh, so that we can turn around and be a source of healing for others. So, again, that's all for me today, and I will talk to you next week. Peace.